Want to create memories with your family? Do you have a desire to bring your family closer together? Are vacations lacking that special something you want your family to have? Tropic of Candy Corn is your resource for smarter, sweeter family travel. Learn from other families, be inspired, and encourage others with your weekend getaway and vacation ideas. Tropic of Candy Corn. This isn't a travel sales site. It's something new and different. A community to help bring your family closer through travel. Join us today at www.tropicofcandycorn.com. It's free and it's fun. Thank you for tuning into Mormon Discussion Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Real. I enjoy this podcast very much. I enjoy providing for you an opportunity to talk deeply about gospel issues, examining deeper the history of the church, and helping you and me through our faith transition in this faith journey. But please, feel free to give me feedback as well. Please email me today at realmormon at gmail.com. R-E-E-L-M-O-R-M-O-N at gmail.com. Share your thoughts, suggestions, questions you have, anything we can do to make the podcast better. Because in the end of the day, this podcast is both about you and me. God bless you. And now on to what you've been waiting to hear. Seth Bryant, welcome to Mormon Discussion. How are you today? Doing really good. Excited to be here. Good, good. Glad to have you on. Uh, today we're talking with Seth Bryant. He is a member of the Community of Christ, uh, formerly known as the Reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I have, uh, Seth, for a long time, wanted to have somebody on from the Community of Christ just to have a conversation to talk about some of the commonalities and differences between our two faiths, which share a uh, the same faith tradition. Uh, but before we jump into that, wonder if you just might give our, our the listeners a feel for for who you are with a brief bio. So I grew up in Sandy, Utah. I was a son of uh, some inactive Mormons, so I came from a Jack Mormon family. And when I was 14, I rebelled and decided to become active. There was a um, a blonde in my ward, and and she had a big impact on me in that regard, and got me going to church. I just fell in love with uh, her family and. Started attending, and I actually served a mission at 19, went to North Carolina Raleigh Mission, where I met my wife. We both were serving, and I can say I didn't unlock my heart, although I can't speak for her. Uh, we came we came home and got married, and we have three children. We now live in Heber City, Utah, just on uh, the other side of the Wasatch Range from where I grew up in Sandy. So Community of Christ, I mean, I always picture it, as being in places like Kirtland and Missouri, being an end, you know, independence there, being kind of the big spots. But are there a lot of Community of Christ uh, um, congregations out in Utah? So we don't have uh, a lot of congregations. We do have several emerging groups. We've got the Salt Lake Congregation, which has been in the state of Utah in one form or another since the 1860s. Um, there's a group in Ogden, a congregation in Ogden. And like I said, we have emerging groups, which we call house churches, and you can find those um, all across Utah. But we actually joined, and that's a, it's a whole other story in itself, but we actually joined in Florida, in Gainesville, Florida. Gotcha. Well, let's do that. Let's talk about your personal journey of exiting the LDS uh, church and finding a home in the community of Christ. Sure. So I became, I would say, a disaffected Mormon uh, somewhere during my undergraduate studies at Westminster College in Salt Lake City, Utah. I had had concerns and frustrations before that, um, but it became to where it was difficult 
for me to feel the spirit or to feel at home within an LDS congregation um, during my undergraduate studies. And as I uh, was driving into Gainesville, Florida, the very first time I drove in, I was uh, I had headed there to attend the University of Florida and take part in a master's program. And as I'm driving in, the very first thing I see in Gainesville is the community of Christ congregation. And I just have this overwhelming sense that that's that I need to check it out. That's where I need to be. And so uh, I, I was taking a class on on uh, research methods. And as part of the class, I had to go and study another congregation. And so it just made perfect sense that I would go and, and visit this congregation. So and I was just as I walked in, I was amazed uh, they were having a study on providing sanctuary to illegal immigrants and they had been using restoration scripture had been using hebrew scripture christian scripture but it really struck me that the kinds of questions they were asking and the ways in which they were using scripture was completely different from my experience in the lds church uh, and and while i was um, listening to this and waiting for their service to begin i found a copy of their most recent section in the doctrine and covenants and again i was just amazed by what i read there uh, and I guess the, the the last part of this experience, the most powerful part, was uh, the first Sunday of the month, which is when the sacrament, which in Community of Christ we call communion, communion was being blessed, and a female high priest stood up and, and um, began to break the bread, and then she said the prayers that I had heard so many times before, and yet, as she said them, I was overwhelmed with the Spirit. I was so overwhelmed, it was to the point where it was almost too much uh, for me. I mean, it was like, it was peaceful, but it was like fire inside of me as well, like a, a burning inside. And I literally said to God, first I said, stop, I, it's enough. Well, second, what are you doing here? I've been begging to fill the Spirit in elders quorum, in sacrament meeting, at the temple. And here of all places is where you greet me. And I, I just, I guess as I reflected on that experience, and even in that experience itself, I had this sense that God had a bigger vision for me of the kingdom, of where I needed to be. Um, and I also sensed that if I embraced it, I could never go back to seeing things the old way. But I did. I mean, I, I ultimately, I responded to that. Um, it took several months, I would say maybe even a year and a half, but I, I responded to that sense of calling that I had and to that peace that I found within Community of Christ and within that little congregation in Gainesville. And it was like I had come home. It's like I had come home for the first time. That, that is so cool. And it is, you know, I, I'm one of these, yes, I'm a Latter-day Saint. And yes, I, I, I feel, you know, honored and, and feel special the truth claims that our church has are special and things that I, I love and revere and, and look up to, but I'm not naive enough to not validate others' journeys and to think that I've only got this one true path and everybody else is losing out. And so I mean this from the bottom of my heart. I totally, totally look up to you for honoring that call that came from God and, and respect you uh, for, for following up on that. Well, I really appreciate that. I, you know, I don't always encounter that. <laughs> so I, I'm, you know, it's always a good thing when you can recognize uh, the things that we have in common in the restoration and as followers of Christ and not focus on the things that divide us. Yeah, yeah. And I'm excited about just the discussion today, even just in your talking about 
your exit from the LDS faith into the community of Christ, you hit on some things within the community of Christ that are similar uh, to our faith and as well as being different. And I want to get into that, but I want to ask you a question prior to that, which is you talked a little bit about exiting the LDS church and, and I don't need you to go into great detail or anything, but if I can just ask, was it, was it a matter of being frustrated with the historical issues? Was it a matter of social issues? Was it, was it something done at church that just didn't feel right or, or what was the, what were some of the, I guess the more heightened issues that, uh, that you felt kind of limited your, your ability to move forward within the LDS uh, church? Well, it was, yes, it was the historical issues and yes, it was the lack of, um, what I saw as a lack of social, uh, engagement and responding to current and pressing issues. Um, I mean, certainly, uh, LGBT issues were, were something that frustrated me. Um, and I, I, what I found was that my relationship with God was actually suffering the longer that I stayed in the LDS church because I was frustrated because I didn't fit. Uh, and I, I, I say, I, I want to say, I want to be very respectful in that because I know that for many Mormonism fits and it works and it's a place where you can connect with God and help to build the kingdom and make the lives of others better. And so I'm not saying that, that it isn't uh, a part of God's salvation and a potential expression of the kingdom of God. For me, because of that frustration that I felt uh, over historical issues, over the treatment of, uh, well, and I have a gay brother. I mean, I'm, this isn't like abstract, like literally over the treatment that I saw of my brother. Um, and so the lack of the lack of uh, honesty that I saw in how history was engaged and also in how honest seekers of truth uh, were treated and, you know, at, at times excommunicated. All of this just led to this growing frustration in me. On one hand, and then on the other hand, I didn't feel like I was being spiritually fed. And so I would be, I was just bored. I mean, I was, I was bored out of my mind in elders quorum at, at uh, you know, sacrament meeting. I would study the scriptures um, on my own in the back. And I uh, really, I don't think it was a prideful thing. I just think the content, um, I think maybe there's this assumption that because it's the true church that, that people will just come anyway. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe maybe you have some thoughts on this, Bill. But I was just I was bored on one hand. I didn't feel like I was getting spiritually fed. And then on the other hand, um, I was intensely frustrated uh, with the focus of the church and the way that it engaged its own history. No, no, I appreciate that. And in many ways, validate and agree with what you just stated. Uh, and in no way would take away from that. I, I experience a lot of those same things. I don't have a solution for it either. And I, and I think you're right. I think in some regards, the church seeing itself as the one and only true church on the earth, it just makes the assumption that, you know, whatever we're doing, it's obviously the right way to do it. And if people want to come, they'll, they'll magically show up. And I think sometimes we got to look at, you know, our teachers prepared, our, are we being as inclusive as we possibly can within the doctrine or, and I, and we ask those same kinds of questions here on the podcast. So no, I totally understand where you're coming from. And, and, uh, I think in many ways we've all got to come to grips with the fact that regardless of what church you belong to, in some ways, religion's messy and uh, we got to kind of filter through and navigate these things. You, you hit on, again, you hit on a moment ago about some of the differences and similarities. Maybe run us through what you see as the major uh, doctrinal or theological differences between the two traditions. 
So I think the biggest difference would be that we would shy away even from using the term doctrine and would focus more on theology. And that what that says is that instead of uh, propositions or or fixed doctrines um, that we can assert and they have a sense of, of being eternal, unchangeable, or maybe even, um, you know, this is this is the best that we've got, but, you know, we don't necessarily question it. Within Community of Christ, our understanding of God is more of a journey. And it our understanding of God also informs what we're doing here and now. And I'm not saying that's not the case in the LDS Church. I hope I don't think you're doing this, Bill. I hope your listeners understand that every time I say we do this in community of Christ, I'm not necessarily contrasting it in saying the LDS Church does 180 degrees. But our understanding of God demands that we work for justice and seek to establish peace in people's lives here and now. And that orientation to this life, that salvation occurs in this life, and that God is intensely interested that we don't suffer, that we don't suffer needlessly, um, but that conditions where people are living um, unjustly and that might be they might be because of choices um, that they've made, which have alienated them from themselves and from God and how God would want them to live. Or it could be choices that others have made that have created unjust conditions. But God is is very much calling us to work towards overcoming those unjust conditions and ending unnecessary suffering. And so our focus and our emphasis is very much on this life and on bringing about Zion here and now. And as I said, that's a reflection of our understanding of God, that God lives within within the triune community of traditionally known as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is, uh, there is not just unity and purpose, but there is a... A combined vision and love and community that provides a perfect model of Zion. And our job is to go and look for instances where that kind of unity, that love, that peace doesn't exist and overcome it so that God's reign might be fulfilled and realized throughout the earth. Yeah, and that's beautiful. And I think, I think you hit on something. I, I don't think it would be, and as you point out, you're not, you're not necessarily contrasting between the community of Christ and the, the LDS church, but this idea that you're more concerned with relieving suffering in the here and now, uh, and I think sometimes I look at my faith, the LDS church, and I think, yeah, I think all religions do that to some extent, but I think within Mormonism, there certainly is a tangent of if someone's suffering and perhaps, you know, let's just use the, uh, the, the idea of someone being gay, for instance. And because of the doctrine of the church, they essentially would have to live a life of celibacy and live a life of aloneness. And the LDS church approach would be, you know, yes, you're going to have to suffer here in the here and now for the next, you know, 75 years, but it'll all be worth it in the hereafter. But it sounds like what you're doing is pointing people to the idea that all we know for sure is what we have at this very moment. Let's do the best we can to encourage, uplift, and help people in, in this present moment and, and let, let things a million years from now take care of themselves. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's not to the exclusion of faith or hope in the next life. We certainly have that. Uh, but no, I, we would definitely say that this life is to be treasured and celebrated and it's precious. And so 
I mean, I, I don't want to come across as, um, condemning that concept that, you know, you just have to suffer through your same sex attraction because I know that there are many who are doing that as a faithful response to where, you know, in their relationship with God and with their community, their faithful community. But I, to me, that seems like a terrible, terrible shame uh, to, I mean, I, I don't know how else to say it, but to waste a life. Um, I, you know, my, because of, because of that orientation is so focused on this life, it just, it changes. A lot of things are 180 degrees. I'm not saying everything is, but this might be one instance where it is. And, and one of the key things to, to, to realize is that our sense of sin and salvation are very, um, so sin is anything that alienates us from the love and the peace and the harmony that God would want us to enjoy, whether in this life or the next. And so when we look at conditions on the earth and we ask, is that not is there a list of um, things that we need to be obedient to? And, and are we upholding the list and, and living within certain parameters? But we can ask to each unique situation is that person in a place of peace and joy and happiness and love? And if not, then that's contrary to God's desire and God's vision for them and, and for that community and for creation. And so it's on us to go in and to uh, challenge that alienation, to overcome that sin and, and to help um, God's vision to be more fully realized. Yeah, I, I hope that most members of the LDS Church are aware of how the community of Christ uh, got its, you know, its origins. Obviously, being in the same faith tradition, uh, Joseph Smith the Third, and 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 you know Emma and and others, kind of, um, you know, obviously there's this gap between Joseph Smith Jr.'s death and and the reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints originating uh, with the prophet's son. I don't really want to go into detail about that kind of story. I hope that anybody can just type in on Google and find a Wikipedia article and find those things out. What I want to focus tonight on, Seth, is more perhaps the things that have gone in the last hundred years. So let me put it this way. Um, I think if we were to take your your church and my church and go back 150 years ago, there would be a lot of similarities, of course, still some differences, but a lot of similarities. As the two faith traditions have kind of forked in the road and, and moved separate ways, there's a lot of bigger differences, I think, today. And I want to kind of hit on what some of those are. Would you mind talking about uh, some of the unique changes that the community of Christ uh, has gone through in the last century? Sure. And it's hard for me to, to talk about that trajectory without at least hitting partly on Joseph Smith III because his uh, the course that, that he set for the church really, I mean, I, there are echoes of it, and it, it's still today. I mean, we're very much um, a church that comes out of that vision of Joseph Smith III as, as he received it from his father. And so he would have felt that Zion could only come about through peaceful interaction with the Gentiles. That's still a term that they're using uh, late 19th, early 20th century. But this this idea that there has to be cooperation, that we can't uh, build an insular little kingdom away from the world, but that Zion is, is working and cooperating with your neighbors uh, to bring about this this vision that that God has the peaceable kingdom. So he was very much interested in re- returning to independence, Missouri, 
and eventually does that personally in 1906. Um, he dies about a decade later, and he actually, uh, his son becomes, Frederick M. Smith becomes the president of the church, the third president of the reorganization. But in that desire to go back to independence, it's certainly based on his father's vision for Zion and an understanding of the center place. Uh, but it, it's with that cooperative mindset, which Fred M. Smith, uh, who had a Ph.D. and was very interested in the social gospel, um, takes that even one step further. So you've got to remember that, in contrast to the geographic isolation of the saints in Utah, uh, the the reorganized saints are in the midst of, you know, a whole lot of stuff going on that isn't necessarily just the restoration. But they are um, they're living side by side with their neighbors. There's certainly influences um, that that come in. So, for example, um, you know, I, I heard a story, and I didn't realize this until this weekend, that it was pretty common for RLDS members not to dance, and they probably got that from their Baptist neighbors. But what they also got is an understanding of the need for cooperation. And with that social gospel emphasis that Fred M. gave the church, they felt like they could almost scientifically go about uh, to literally bringing Zion back on the earth, to gathering the saints back to independence, um, and and uh, Christ would return. And so that creates a different climate um, in many ways. All of that creates a different climate than was experienced in the Restoration in Utah. And the presidents of the church following that, so um, we have after Fred, we have Israel A. Smith, and then he was killed in a car accident, and then after that, uh, w. Wallace Smith, they continue to expand that vision of Zion as less of um, fortress building and getting away out of the world but but more to Zion is the world transformed to its best, and it demands that we go out and uh, that we find you know a way to experience Christ in each culture to experience it uniquely, not to just take a Midwestern culture and transplant it all over the world, but to to recognize uh, God's influence and God's voice in all of these diverse peoples. And and that's especially um, significant or powerful in in the 1960s. And so as the church fills the spirit, calling it into Asia and into uh, beyond its, its traditional footprint, uh, much like we read in the New Testament, the spirit going first and then the disciples following, they they find themselves um, they find themselves in Asia in uh, places where Christianity maybe isn't known at all, or if it is, it's it's certainly not the dominant religion. And so they go with the traditional narrative that they've always had that you know there was this Christianity, then then an apostasy, and then the restoration came along, and then the reorganization was a correct form of the restoration. And, and they set up this this um, this narrative that really doesn't doesn't seem to answer the problems of poverty and also the social upheaval that's going on in the 1960s um, throughout the world. And so these these missionaries begin to question the, their own narrative that they're sharing. That what relevance um, do some of these truth claims have in a culture where 
they don't even know about Christianity, let alone the restoration, let alone the reorganization. Um, so they they begin, and, and I think this is a very valid question to ask. I mean, the restoration began to provide answers. Granted, they were based on eternal principles, but they're answers for pressing problems and questions of the day. And as some in the reorganization have both laughed and lamented, we have all the answers to the questions that nobody's asking anymore. So things like where did the uh, where did the Native Americans come from? I mean, they just these are these are questions that maybe in the 19th century on the frontier in America were very pressing. But as we go into uh, Japan post World War II, it just it just didn't seem to provide the same sorts of answers um, that were that were really needed to bring about God's kingdom and that joy and 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 peace um, that they felt was a marker or a sign of Christ's reign. And so, unlike most missionaries, these RLDS missionaries were actually transformed more by, you know, the people that they were sent to convert than their than the people that were actually brought into the church. So they're deeply transformed um, by this encounter and by a willingness to question what is transcendent and eternal in our message and what's contingent or what was only something that was caught up in one culture and time and place uh, and doesn't necessarily apply to another culture. And in seeking for that transcendent or eternal message of the restoration, um, it very much led to a deconstruction. And from the 60s into the 70s, um, they they questioned and analyzed and really were on this prayerful journey of discernment to find out what matters most. And the answer that they had in the 70s and the 60s, but that we that we affirm today is that Christ is what matters most and specifically the mission of Christ and mission before might have been seen as a proselyting activity. Well, today, through through this journey, we've found that the mission of Christ, while it includes proclaiming Christ to others, it's also abolishing poverty and ending suffering. Uh, it's also establishing peace on the earth. And so it's more than just uh, missionary work in the traditional sense, but the mission of Christ is the redemption that we experience through Christ as it touches us in all aspects of life. And so we very much become a people of mission and less. It's not that the story doesn't matter. We certainly tell the sacred story. We see ourselves as a prophetic people, and that journey begins with Joseph Smith Jr. in the grove. Uh, but the mission and bringing people into right relationships with God and overcoming injustice and establishing peace, realizing Christ uh, incarnate throughout all these cultures, that's what becomes central to who we are. And so we might say that before we were a people about the restoration, and in this journey, we've become a people of the restoration that, you know, the restoration was a wild and woolly ride in the beginning. And we're still in the midst of it. I mean, it it challenges us being prophetic and having having that impulse is very charismatic um, and it challenges us. It disrupts us and calls us to do things that maybe we weren't comfortable with or to experience things in new ways as, you know, different ways that, that might challenge uh, a more traditional orientation. Awesome. I, uh, I wonder if you might spend a moment, I mean, obviously both churches are led by a person who serves in the office titled prophet. And 
and because of that, obviously there's a prophetic mantle, there's revelation uh, that is being claimed to be received in scriptures that are being added to uh, in both uh, of our churches. Maybe for a moment, just take some time and explain the difference of the prophetic mantle, uh, having been in both churches between the two. So I, the even the concept prophetic mantle, I don't know if I've ever heard that within community of Christ. There certainly is a sense of it. And to give you an example, uh, our current president and prophet, Steve Beasy, he was um, president of the church for several years before he presented his first revelation. And what I've heard, this is before I came in, but what I've heard is that members would say to him, uh, you may be the president, but you're not the prophet yet. As in, until we get some sort of revelatory uh, guidance, uh, uh, inspired counsel to the church, you haven't fully lived into that role as the prophet of the church. Um, and I, I think it's important to note, too, that our understanding of what it means to be prophetic in community of Christ is very, very different um, from the LDS church, where we would look to the prophets uh, at the end of the Hebrew scriptures, so the Old Testament, um, and those prophets are constantly calling on the people to return to the covenant. And a sign that they have strayed is that they are treating others unjustly. They are alienating, they're marginalizing, uh, they're, they're taking God's beloved children and treating them as something less than uh, human or people less than themselves, you know, and not honoring that all of us are created in God's image. And they're, they're also, they're breaking the covenant uh, with God to live faithfully, to act justly, uh, to walk in paths of righteousness. So the prophets are constantly saying, you need to repent, you need to go back and remember the covenant and treat everyone equitably. And so to be prophetic in community of Christ means to challenge any structures, um, any any cultural elements, any political elements that are contrary to God's reconciling and restoring purposes. And, you know, we, we look to the, pro yes, a prophet, whether it's Steve Vesey or um, Amos or, you know, any other example, a prophet can declare, hey, look, if you don't change, if you don't repent, things are going to get really bad. And here's a vision of the future uh, if we don't repent and if we continue in these unjust conditions. But also prophets, obviously, they, they uh, offer future vision of if we do embrace God's vision, this is what Zion looks like. And so there, there is a sense that the prophet potentially uh, can, can have this vision of God's kingdom realized or maybe the opposite, um, this dystopian, uh, the covenant completely denied and the terror that that would bring. But in community of Christ, first and foremost, it's not about the sense of uh, future telling. It's it's more about that prophetic impulse to honor God's spirit, to return back to the covenant and to embrace uh, that vision of the peaceable kingdom that God would want us to embrace. And so that's I I mean, I, I, I think that that's for us, the president of the church. Um, I don't know. It's I guess it's a, maybe it's a subtle nuance. I definitely I. I, I sense a very real difference that um, and it's probably because all of us are called to be prophetic, that Steve Vesey calls on all of us to discern God's will. And then we all come together uh, in establishing Zion. So I don't know. Does that answer your question, Bill? Um, 
It, it does. It does. And I want to follow it up because I think, you know, obviously the, the questions I've got set out to ask you are just to kind of gain insight, but this one's going to sound critical. I don't mean it that way. I just, I need to at least explore this issue so that we can, can kind of get a feel for where things were and where they are. But in the community of Christ, I mean, let's just go back to the very beginning with, you know, as, as the reorganized church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, one of the things they hinge their authority on is this idea that Joseph Smith III is called to, to lead the church after his father. And that, that office of being prophet or president of the church is passed from descendant to descendant and it seems like, at least, it seems like to me in the LDS tradition that I look at the, the RLDS church or community of Christ and it's, it looks like they had planned on that always being the case, that they were in a sense basing their proper authority on the fact that the office of prophet was supposed to stay in the family. And of course that doesn't happen. I mean, it does for a long time, but eventually that doesn't happen. And, it seems like I know that, that that switch was turbulent at the time for the community of Christ, but it seems looking back now that that's become a pretty smooth transition. How have you guys gone from a tradition that said, hey, this is supposed to be in the family to it completely not being the case and without, without jeopardizing everyone walking away and say, now we're not, we're not doing what we said we were doing. Right. Well, no, I, that's a great question and no need to apologize for seeming to be critical or even being critical. I was actually in the temple the other day and one of the members, uh, was incredibly critical to President Vizi as he, <laughs> like we were having a discussion and it's just, uh, something that uh, we're okay to question things <laughs> in community of Christ in a way that you just, I could never imagine, uh, in the LDS church. But to answer your question, um, so, when Joseph Smith is looking at succession options, certainly one of the possibilities was Joseph Smith III. And I, I think uh, that it's very valid to say that Brigham Young had uh, an excellent claim, and that was within the possibilities that Joseph Smith envisioned as well, as well as a few others. I, I think my read of history is that Joseph Smith expected Hiram to be his successor, and I think that's one of the reasons why he, I mean, obviously his brother had been killed in front of him and that would be incredibly traumatic. But I think one of the, one of the, um, reasons for anguish in addition to his brother's death was the fact that this clear succession option that he had set up was now gone. Uh, and so in the reorganization, certainly early on, they would have said that Joseph Smith III is the only potential option and that, uh, there was no other, there was no other, um, valid succession route. And one of the things they would have looked to is um, scriptures that support patrilineal succession within the Doctrine and Covenants. And that's something that uh, was continued in Utah as well, um, in the office of presiding patriarch up until the late 1970s. Um, this idea that certain rights of the priesthood descend from father to son. And so in the reorganization, they definitely understood uh, early on that that was uh, that was one way that that God could continue uh, the office or succession in the office of the president of the church, not only uh, the patriarch. But Joseph Smith III was clear that it wasn't the only route. 
He was clear that it was, wasn't the only route. It was just the route that he felt, uh, that God was using both with his ordination and with the ordination of Fred M. Smith. But there was this clear sense that, that it didn't necessarily have to be that way. And by the time of, uh, the 1950s and 60s into the 60s, as that traditional, a lot of the traditional elements are, are being examined, that's one of the things that, uh, is is questioned, and we have for the first time a presiding patriarch that didn't come through the Smith line, which was problematic for many more traditional members of the church. And by the time that um, W. Wallace, or excuse me, Wally B. Smith, who's the make sure I get this right, great grandson of Joseph Smith Jr., uh, by the time that he is ready to retire and a uh, successor is being identified. He he just simply states that that God is calling Grant McMurray. God is calling from outside of the Smith family uh, for the leadership of the church, and it was an understanding that had existed there from the very beginning. But it also stretched the church as well. Um, there's an LDS myth about Community of Christ that this happened because we were out of Smith heirs, male Smith heirs, but. Uh, I can assure you that's not the case. A good friend of mine is a in community of Christ and a descendant of Joseph Smith. So that wasn't the case at all. It's simply that as the leadership, specifically as, as the president of the church, discerned who the next successor should be, God made it clear uh, that it should be Grant McMurray. And so there, I, I can understand, you know, every time that there's a transfer of power, and we sometimes use this with American uh, political history, but every time there's this uh, transfer of power, there's, you know, this question of, is it going to go off smooth? But in Community of Christ, there's the understanding that the president of the church will probably designate a successor. Hasn't always happened. I mentioned the car accident as one, uh, one example. And even in that case, actually, I, it was, it was pretty much, uh, designated if, if not, uh, explicitly than implicitly. But, um, in the case of Grant McMurray, who resigned because of health issues and other things, there's this understanding that, the leaders of the church, including the counselors in the first presidency, the 12, the presiding bishopric, others, uh, that that they can enter a period of discernment and together that God will uh, reveal who the next leader of the church should be. And then that's still presented to the church and there's a period of discernment for the church and a vote is taken and, you know, together we're, we're on a journey. Um, and there are certainly, I mean, not in the case of succession, but there certainly have been times where not everybody has has discerned the same thing or felt that God was calling us to do the same thing. And, you know, it, it's resulted um, in schisms and, uh, you know, at times uh, people feeling alienated if they remain. But the desire that we have uh, is together to be a prophetic people led by a prophet, but be a prophetic people who discern God's will together, and we go on this journey together, and we grow where there's instances where we need to grow uh, together. You you mentioned it. I just want to just be clear. There is lots of LDS folklore about the community of Christ. Just for the record, um, I just heard I just heard the other day I was teaching a I, I started a class here at our ward where I was teaching an evening class on church history, hoping to bring some of the members more up to date with some of the the issues so that so that they wouldn't encounter them from a critical source later on and we were talking just about 
Joseph Smith, and I don't remember what the exact subject was, but the one lady in the back raised her hand and said, oh, yeah, uh, the community of Christ, they're broke, and they went to President Hinckley, and he loaned them lots of money, and they basically promised someday that that uh, when uh, when they were ready, they would just give us back the Kirtland Temple. Um, I'm, I'm guessing that that's not true. No, yeah. no, that's not true. There's tons uh, of that. Right. Now, I will say this. Um, there was, and maybe, and you know how sometimes things have a kernel of truth in sure. them, but yep. yeah. So there was, there was a case where, uh, we were building a new visitor's center at Kirtland and President Hinckley pulled out his checkbook. And I believe, I, I believe, this is my memory, so who knows, but I believe he wrote a check for $10,000, uh, to assist us in building this visitor center because a great deal of the visitors are LDS. And, you know, just in the spirit of being good neighbors and recognizing our common heritage and history, he wrote us a check. And uh, President Vesey turned to our presiding bishop and said, where's my checkbook? Because in Community of Christ, the money is controlled very closely <laughs> by the bishops and, you know, ultimately by the presiding bishopric. And so uh, apparently President Vesey didn't have the same kind of checkbook. But there, there, so there was a check written, but it wasn't with, you know, oh, and by the way, we're going to, you know, come and give you the, the Kirtland Temple. Um, certainly not. We, we value our church history and our heritage um, and there just is no way that we would ever uh, sell the Kirtland Temple. Um, there have been cases where historic lands that maybe meant more to the LDS Church have been sold. Uh, but, you know, if, if you go to Nauvoo or Kirtland, you'll see that uh, we are very much interested in preserving our history and telling our, our common sacred story. So we can squash the Chapter 11 uh, ideas right now. <laughs> okay, good. Good. Um, I want to hit on another idea. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the the community of Christ transformation on the LGBT issues and on women ordination, uh, because those are two hot topics right now in the LDS Church. And uh, just want to get your feel for how the community of Christ has navigated those two. All right. So I will touch on women uh, ordination first, and there certainly has been uh, the question of why not ordain women since the very um, early days of the reorganization. And I would say it goes back even to Nauvoo with the founding of the Relief Society and women being told that they were priestesses and being given um, keys in relation to the Relief Society. And so I, I think the question comes up during Israel A. Smith's um, presidency, and that would have been in the 1940s. But if my if I'm remembering history right, he dies uh, in a car accident that happened, but the question never really goes anywhere, partly because of that. And then it comes back up again, um, I would guess as an extension of uh, women's liberation and the feminist movement, um, this question that if women are, you know, women should be treated equally, why not uh, involvement in the priesthood? And by the um, 1980s, a revelations presented to the church and in it, God says, don't wonder if I start to call women to the priesthood. Remember, all are called. And that's uh, that was an idea that all are called uh, that's been present in the reorganization from uh, the beginning. And so this revelation is presented, and I believe it was 1984, 
uh, and uh, generates, as you can imagine, a great deal of discussion and discontent. And a lot of the folks who were um, upset about it had been upset ever since a non-Smith had been ordained presiding ba- patriarch um, back in the 60s. And so, uh, or maybe even before that, maybe it was 58. But in any event, um, you have a, a conservative portion of the church that reacts um, against this revelation and decidedly says that this is not God's will, this is not the direction um, that we want to go. And, and they're reacting, to against um, the deconstruction of some of these traditional truth claims and, you know, the, the um, reimagining of the restoration that the church was undergoing. And so by 1986, um, at the conference, we there is an acceptance of Section 156 into the canon, which allows for women's ordination. And it causes um, a large, well, I, don't, I wouldn't say large in some ways. I mean, it, it causes a portion of the church um, to break off. And part of the challenge was a lot of uh, these folks had been very active in their congregations. And so it was a very difficult time. And in part, and, and I'll, I'll certainly touch on this as, as we discuss LGBT issues, but in part, um, the attitude from the leadership was, well, this is what God says. And the church has spoken by common consent, and you're just going to have to follow. Um, end of discussion. And so maybe it wasn't that harsh, but in in demanding, you know, that uh, those that were upset just fall in line, uh, it, it polarized things and made things even more difficult. But through that very difficult time, women were um, ordained and have since been called to serve in the highest offices of the church. Um, we have yet to have a female president of the church, but we do have one member of the first presidency uh, who's a woman, Becky Savage, and we have several apostles. We have um, presidents of 70s, 70s, pastors, I mean, the, throughout the entire organization, uh, the priesthood um, organization, we have women serving and really enriching the life of the church and helping us collectively, um, I guess, to better realize what priesthood is and not to take it for granted as, as something that, uh, as a man, I guess I can say this, is something that is a right or something that belongs to me, but is a calling to um, to serve as a minister and as an expression of Christ. And there's, for us, nothing that says that your, uh, that your gender determines whether or not you can serve. And so as we go on that journey, of course, it's only natural, uh, and, and with our understanding of sin and uh, what salvation is, it's only natural to ask, um, why not gay and lesbian members, if they're living in committed relationships, why can't they serve? And so uh, this this was another divisive issue, um, but it was undertaken very differently. And so unlike women in the priesthood, uh, there was a lot more um, discussion and a lot less black and white. But when we actually voted on this in our national conference, you were allowed to vote anywhere from one to five in terms of your support or lack thereof. Uh, and the discernment process, the discussion, and the journey was over uh, many, many years. And ultimately, it was decided uh, by Section 164, our most recent section in the Doctrine and Covenants, that national conferences should be established and national jurisdictions of the church or large regional jurisdictions such as Europe 
um, should determine the policy of the church for that area. And part of the reason for that was that there are places in the church um, where if a homosexual uh, minister, well, I, I should say there are places where if people knew that our church allowed um, gays to be ordained, our existing priesthood and members could actually be in danger. Um, and so, you know, this it's a real challenge because we seek to be prophetic. We seek to uh, honor that that enduring principle that all are called and the idea that God calls whomever God calls. That's, and that's the ideal. And yet, on the other hand, there are cultural realities, regional realities, that it would actually produce danger and harm if a world church, at the world church level, we were to say that uh, priesthood is, you know, not based on your sexual orientation, just as it isn't based on your gender. Um, so where we're at now is that several national or regional conferences have been called, and in the United States, Canada, Australia, Europe, um, I believe those are. Uh, the only ones at this point, but in those places, as long as somebody is in a committed relationship, if and, and they need to be married if marriage is an option legally, uh, but as long as they're in that monogamous relationship, that uh, there's nothing that limits or prohibits them from serving. And in fact, in Salt Lake, so uh, we recently had um, a guy that was ordained an elder and. He's gay and nobody cares. I mean, it just it really doesn't matter. Uh, and one of the great things we had a, a reunion, which is well, like a camping experience. We all go up in the mountains and sleep in cabins and sing and pray together and, and uh, swim and talk and eat. I mean, it's just a great, great experience. But at the very end of it, uh, he said, this is the first time that my family has ever been accepted as a family. And. I mean, I'm, I'm tearing up right now even thinking about that experience. And, you know, just just the reflection on that helps me to say, yeah, that's that's a moment when Zion was more fully established, when there was no poor among us. And, and poverty takes many forms, and it's not just limited to uh, the lack of access to economic resources. But anytime we alienate someone and tell them they can't come sit at the table with us, we've impoverished them, and Zion is fled. Yeah, I, li- I like that, and I appreciate that answer. I want to ask you a couple other questions about ordination. You mentioned pastors, and obviously the community of Christ separates uh, bishops and pastors, whereas the LDS Church kind of meshes the two of those together. Uh, we do have the the general uh, bishopric of the church that oversees the funds and things, but then we have a bishop in each ward. My question, I guess it's a simple one, uh, pastors, which are, the, I assume, the head ecclesiastical leader of a congregation, uh, are they part of a lay ministry or are they paid? So they're lay ministers almost always. There are a few exceptions, uh, but for the most part, our priesthood is lay uh, ministry. It's it's bivocational, just like you'd see in the LDS church. I think that um, that that's a restoration commonality that we have that comes right out of the Book of Mormon, that the priest should labor with their own hands. Uh, in terms of the office, it's not really an office, but the calling of pastor, um, there actually were pastors in the early restoration. Uh, and for a time, we can look to historical documents that show that people were being ordained to the office of pastor within the Melchizedek priesthood. And, th- and this is, this is our common heritage. Um, 
you know, you look to the sixth article of faith and it, it, it lists the offices of the church, I think based on Ephesians 4, 11, but it, it says that uh, one of the offices is pastor. And so over time, though, uh, within the Mormon side of the restoration, you had the bishop, like you said, Bill, taking on um, the role of the pastor until they became synonymous. And today, you know, when I say, um, like, I'm the associate pastor, I think some Mormons think, oh, well, there's just an, another example how you become more Protestant. But in reality, it's, you know, it very much is uh, based on a rest- common restoration heritage. And it's just a term that we have for the presiding elder. So in the old days, you would have been the presiding elder of the, the branch, uh, which is also a pastor, which means somebody who you know, takes care of the sheep, which is exactly what a bishop does. I mean, a lot of these are very common um, ideas. And, yeah, so the bishop in, in Community of Christ is a financial officer that oversees the temporal affairs of the church and also provides direction and guidance to the members of the Aaronic priesthood. Uh, but generally, you would not see a bishop in that presiding priesthood role over a congregation. Good, good. And I wonder too, I mean, people that are listening as members of the LDS church are going to be, I think that's going to be a new, uh, piece of information to them that there were pastors in, in, uh, early on in the faith tradition. Would you mind when this is all said and done, maybe send me a link where they can read the history of that, uh, and see that that's occurred. And that way, I think Latter-day Saints are always kind of eager to, as they learn things, to find resources and source material. And that way we can kind of share it with them and give them a nice place to go to where they can see that that's the case. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'd be happy to do that. Awesome. I mean, obviously the most obvious one is the sixth article of faith, which most of them can probably quote off the top of their heads. Um, but yeah, I, I will, I'll go back and dig that up. If I remember correctly, it was, uh, it actually was occurring in England, um, during some of the initial missionary efforts there. Awesome. Awesome. And then another follow-up question with priesthood. Uh, I know that in the LDS church, same thing, it's a lay ministry, but there also comes a point where someone is called into the general leadership. So if one's serving as not an area 70, but a, uh, I guess a, I don't know what they want to call them, but a regular member of the 70, as well as the quorum of the 12, the president of the church, first presidency, uh, as well as even like mission presidents get, get paid. Do the top leaders in the uh, community of Christ, do they, are they paid for their service? Yes, they are. So we do have a professional uh, priesthood portion of the priesthood as well. So the president of the church, the 12 presiding bishopric, and then, uh, we have several, uh, throughout, uh, the church that are field ministers or, you know, they're, they're assigned to do various things where it is a, a full time paid position for them. Yeah. And that makes sense. I, uh, I wanted to, you know, a couple more questions I wanted to ask you. One of them is the community of Christ view of temples. Obviously the LDS church is known throughout the world for having these buildings, uh, these sacred edifices all over the place. And, and yet most non-members are also aware that there's very strict standards for entering an LDS temple. Uh, what is the differences between our, our LDS temples and the, the temples that the community of Christ has? So in community of Christ, we have two temples. We have Kirtland and independence. Uh, Kirtland is still used for worship, um, and you probably know this, Bill. You live fairly close, I believe, to there, but it's it's as much a historic site as anything. Although, you know, we do have our uh, our worship services that take place in there, and many times um, 
you know, others from the restoration can come and, and can worship there as well. Um, originally, Kirtland served as a site of church administration. So the president of the church uh, led the church from there as well as others. It served as a place for education, and the uh, the elders and others would gather and take classes on various subjects from Hebrew to English and history. Uh, and then the third role that it served was for worship. And all those those three elements of administration and education and worship are found within independence. So it's the site of the headquarters, the president of the church, the 12, and others have their offices there. Uh, they administer all of the church's functions from the temple. And it's also a place where we gather for learning and education. We have a, something called Temple School, which courses, uh, which they're largely correspondence courses, but they, they can be done in person as well, but they, um, they're administered through the temple. And so it's a place for training of the priesthood as well as just our general membership. And we have symposia and other things that take place there. Uh, we have a peace colloquy where we, just this last one, we learned about poverty and how to, uh, how to abolish poverty in the world. Um, so it's a place of education. And then the third one is it's a place of worship. And part of that, that model for worship comes from Acts chapter two, back to the primitive church and where they were gathering at the temple. And in the narrative, so we start in Luke, the very end of uh, the gospel of Luke, Jesus says, I want you to take the gospel to all nations, but I need you to wait in Jerusalem until you're empowered uh, with the Holy Spirit. So, you know, the traditional language in, is until you're endowed with power from on high. And that occurs um, as the apostles and others, disciples are gathered at the temple and the Holy Spirit comes at the day of Pentecost. And so they are endowed with power to actually fulfill that commission, that great commission of Christ. Uh, and that's, you know, th- that's the first time the gospel is preached after Christ's um, death and uh, resurrection, the first time it's preached with power uh, once the Holy Spirit descends. And so we gather at the temple to receive the Holy Spirit, to be endowed for mission, to go out and share that message of Christ and to transform the world to Zion. And so if uh, if you ever look at Google Maps at uh, where our temple's at in Independence, you'll see that uh, it's a spiral, which is meant to be something we gather in. The spiral gathers us into the center, and then it also sends us out. And as we're sent out of the temple, we're sent into what's called the World Plaza. And it's a, a huge brick plaza that has uh, images of all the nations of the world. I mean, it's the globe. And so as we're sent out through the doors that say peace with the church seal, the lion and the lamb and the child, as Isaiah saw, as we're sent out to establish this vision of peace into the world, I mean, that's what the temple is calling us to do, to to be transformed and then go out and to transform the world. Awesome. Awesome. Glad to hear that. And I appreciate the conversation we're having. I hope that uh, this episode is listened to by a, a lot of Latter-day Saints who who perhaps haven't done a lot of uh, research into the community of Christ and just to be aware of, of the differences that are out there and I think to to maybe kill some of those uh, stories of folklore that we've talked about earlier. Um, I want to talk a little bit about required beliefs for membership. So let's say, Seth, that Bill Real comes to a community of Christ congregation and wants to get baptized. What does uh, What does somebody have to say, do, show, act as uh before they can enter the waters of baptism and and maybe 
maybe even talk to us a little bit about some of those, um, or, or, you know, those initial uh, ordinances that one has to participate in to enter into the kingdom. Sure. So if you were to show up or anybody else, there's actually the potential that you could be baptized just on your desire to follow Christ. And then before you were confirmed, uh, there are lessons that you would have to take and, you know, you'd have to, you'd have to show, uh, that you're committed to living in this community and following Christ as a disciple. But for the most part, people come and we, we don't require them to say, you know, oh, I believe this and I don't believe that, but more it's, do you have a desire to follow Christ? Do you have a desire to take Christ's message and make the world a better place? And if, and if they have that desire, then we'll baptize them. Uh, <laughs> so, and, and the big thing is, I mean, I, I think it's kind of self-discriminating. Um, you know, they've got to learn about the church. They're going to learn that, that we've got, um, if, if they're not in the restoration or from a restoration tradition, they're going to learn that we have some quirky, you know, uh, beliefs or practices or history. Um, and so their desire to be part of our community, I would hope that they, that they know about that. I think in, in, that they've got to, they've got to know that our canon of scripture is different, uh, from most other Christians. But at the end of the day, they're not required to believe in the Book of Mormon. They don't have to confess a belief in Joseph Smith Jr. They, there just has to be that desire to follow Christ within community of Christ and to want to go forth and, and through that, that vision of Christ's peaceful kingdom, make the world a place of joy, hope, love, and peace. I, I want to talk for a moment about the Book of Mormon. And so I'll give you another piece of LDS folklore about the community of Christ, which I'm sure you've heard before, and, and you probably already know where I'm going, which is that... Uh, the community of Christ, in order to be accepted by a Christian council out there somewhere, had to change its name and had to essentially give up the Book of Mormon uh, as scripture. And I know that's not the case, so you at least have one person here who's aware of the of the facts, but maybe walk us through the, that idea as well as the community of Christ's view of the Book of Mormon, what regard it holds it in, and, and then I think what that'll do is lead to maybe a discussion of what is scripture and how perhaps the community of Christ defines that. All right. So in the reorganization, in the beginning, there was certainly a belief that the Book of Mormon was a literal history. And among all of the um, followers of the Restoration, it's the reorganization that very first attempts uh, to go down to Central America and prove that the Book of Mormon is a literal history. Um, not that not that others, I mean, I, I think um, that B.H. Roberts and Orson Pratt, I mean, others had done studies, but members of the reorganization are literally pouring through Mesoamerican studies, the very best scholarship available, uh, and they're sending people down to Central America, and they're looking for evidences. Um, so by, I think it's 1894, 1896, somewhere in there, a world conference of the RLDS Church actually appoints a Committee on American Archaeology. And they publish a report, and the report is just fascinating, and it's on uh, Google Books, so maybe I'll, I'll send the link so that your listeners can take a look at that, Bill. But um, they're, they are doing everything they can to pour through this Mesoamerican literature to try to prove that the Book of Mormon is a literal history. And the problem, though, <laughs> is 
that although they find false positives, what I would call false positives, they find a glyph that has a cross in it and they take a plaster cast and they bring it back to the auditorium and everyone marvels uh, at this evidence and and, and other things like that. Uh, But ultimately, they are unconvinced that there is any archaeological evidence to prove that the Book of Mormon is an actual, actual literal history. Uh, and there are uh, then our LDS apostles that are involved or at least aware of this, and that this would be the 1940s or so. This, this deeply um, transforms their understanding of what is Scripture and, more importantly, what's the value of Scripture. So as the leadership of the church is involved in more and more training, and they, there's certainly a desire as part of that attitude that we should engage with um, the rest of the world and should hone our message based on the very best science and research and and um, uh, the very best that's available. Just as it says about the Kirtland Temple, you know, uh, seeking out the best books. Like the leadership of the church is learning and growing and eventually we have a cohort that, that attends a seminary, and so they engage in um, biblical scholarship. They are learning about scripture, and they're applying those same research tools of um, higher and lower criticism to the Book of Mormon. And they take that in conjunction with some of these past archaeological studies, which have proved to be disappointing if you're a scriptural literalist. And they come to the conclusion uh, that the Book of Mormon is highly problematic as a literal history. And part of that conclusion is based on things like Deutero-Isaiah being present uh, within, anachronistically present within the Book of Mormon. Uh, but there, there's, other, there's other things that lead them to be suspicious. And some of them determine that the best course of action is actually to minimize the Book of Mormon. Now, I guess you asked about personal belief. Um, I'll, I'll share my personal belief, and then I'll share where the church is today on the matter. I think that what they were doing, that there's nothing wrong with the kind of study of the Book of Mormon that they were doing and the critical standards to which they were holding it. The problem, however, is we cannot hold religious truth to a scientific standard or or a scientific standard to uh a religious proposition. I, I guess what I'm getting at is you shouldn't try to prove that religion is true with science or that science is true with religion. Usually it's that science is false with religion. But that these are two different ways of approaching the world, two different forms of knowledge with different ways that we arrive at meaning and purpose and value. And so I think that what they were doing in terms of scholarship was fine, but they left discouraged and disheartened thinking that there was nothing that they could do with this book. And I I might look to the book of Job as an example. So I have a friend who's an English professor in Salt Lake, and he's Episcopal, and his uh, scripture study group was looking at the book of Job. And so after after, uh, this this very powerful um, experience with Job, he's talking with his neighbor, and he wants to share. And his Mormon neighbor listens politely, but seems very, you know, disturbed by what uh, the professor is saying about Job and his message. And he and he's like, I, you know, I just got to stop you. I just want to make sure that you understand that Job was a literal person. And my friend said, okay, like I, I don't know what that has to do with the message. And and, and the Mormon neighbor's like, no, it has everything to do with the message. He's got to be a literal figure. Uh, um, and I and I I like his story because it speaks 
the differences uh, in how a scriptural literalist versus someone who might see the symbolic meaning behind scripture, how they find value and meaning. So Job, by all accounts, there's just no uh, no biblical scholar that would say that Job was an actual person. At the same time, I, I don't know. It, it isn't any less meaningful to me that this is some an account that uh, isn't necessarily based on history or that it has you know a, a, a historicity that I can't trace back. I, I think we put demands based on our current location uh, and our understanding of history. We put demands on Scripture that Scripture doesn't put on itself or that the writers of Scripture never would have intended to place upon it. Uh, that that its meaning and its value transcends the sorts of questions. Uh, that we normally engage in a critical study. And and so that would be my critique of what the RLDS Church was doing in that deconstruction uh, of the Book of Mormon and really a lack the, their lack of uh, reliance on the text, some of them, during that period. And I would say that Community of Christ has come a long way since then. We actually um, we have a statement on Scripture in Community of Christ, and you can find that on our website at seaofchrist.org. Uh, or perhaps that's another link that we can share. But I'm looking at Affirmation 5 in that statement. And it says, Scripture is vital and essential to the church, but not because it is inerrant in the sense that every detail is historically or scientifically correct. Scripture makes no such claim for itself. Rather, generations of Christians have found Scripture simply to be trustworthy in keeping them anchored in revelation, in promoting faith in Christ, and in nurturing the life of discipleship. For these purposes... Scripture is unfailingly reliable. So in Community of Christ today, uh, you'll find a variety of beliefs on Scripture. You'll find folks that believe that the Book of Mormon is a literal history. Uh, in fact, on Sunday, um, I had a conversation to that that you know that with with a person who had that exact belief, and we honor that. There's no you don't have to believe in the Book of Mormon. Um, at the same time, if if you want to look at it in, in a traditional understanding. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that. What I would hope, though, is that rather than having arguments back and forth about whether it is literally a history or it's not, it doesn't hold up to some scientific standard and, and therefore should be discarded, like rather than, than falling within that rut, let's talk about the content and what is the value and the meaning of the text. And so, and I, I guess my, my last example uh, would be what um, Mormons will know as Jacob 5, the allegory of the olive tree. In Community of Christ, it's uh, Jacob 3. And there's some pretty good evidence, if you want to look at this um, from a critical standpoint, that uh, that Romans, I think it's Romans 11 and uh, one of the Gospels, that, that you know, if you look at this critically, uh, that it's been lifted um, as an expansion upon these New Testament texts. That rather than um, I think it's a prophet Zenus, but rather than some forgotten prophet presenting this allegory, that it's a 19th century production. And people get caught in this trap and fight back and forth. Uh, but my friend um, John Hamer, I, I attended a class that he gave on Scripture just this last weekend, and he pointed out that within the text it says uh, God basically says the gardener says it grieves me that I should lose this tree. Now, I know for a fact that John Hamer does not believe that this is an ancient text that uh, comes from some Mesoamerican period, or I guess it would be even beyond that. Uh, but for John, he applied that to the church and to the desire that God has 
for the church to be a living, viable entity within the world uh, to herald in the peaceable kingdom, and that God is deeply interested uh, in moments when the church struggles, that God is deeply interested and would grieve to lose the tree. And that was powerful. And neither John or I are going to insist that it's a literal text, and yet it has value and meaning and purpose, just like my friend would say the same thing about Job. I think that, uh, you know, in the church today, what we're moving towards is finding that kind of value and meaning within Scripture. Um, not that not that it's inerrant, not that the prophet is like a mouthpiece, and this is God speaking and the prophet just writes it down, but that Scripture is a message that is unfailing, unfailingly reliable, um, that it, while it, it is coming through time and culture, and it involves a human element, there's a dance between the human and the divine. That it's, it's, it's a created, creative weaving between the divine voice and the human voice. And when we look at the totality of scripture, instead of nitpicking one verse here or there and proof texting, but when we look at the totality of it, we find a message of God's love that is unconditional. And it's, and it demands this lens, this overarching message demands that we value the worth of all persons, that we, you know, we, we, we actually live out the golden rule uh, and, and we seek to be peoples of peace and justice. That, that is truly, I mean, I, I've said this a lot as you've been talking about, it's truly beautiful. And it, it sounds to me not that the community of Christ has said, hey, the Book of Mormon is not historical or that they said, hey, it absolutely has to be historical, but rather they've just taken the question off the table and said, look, scripture, scripture is sacred writing regardless of where it comes from. It's sacred writing that puts, puts, or puts us in touch with the divine. Uh, is that accurate to say? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, if, if you'd like, I can read um, from Doctrine and Covenants 163 because it, it speaks specifically to this. And, and um, I mean, I, I, think, uh, I think there's value actually in reading it and maybe expanding on, you know, exactly where Community of Christ sits. Yeah, please do. And, and obviously for the Latter-day Saints who are following along, they're not going to find this in their Doctrine and Covenants. But, uh, but yeah, please read it. I would love to hear it. Scripture is an indispensable witness to the eternal source of light and truth, which cannot be fully contained in any finite vessel or language. Scripture has been written and shaped by human authors through experiences of revelation and ongoing inspiration of the Holy Spirit in the midst of time and culture. Scripture is not to be worshipped or idolized. Only God, the eternal one of whom Scripture testifies, is worthy of worship. God's nature, as revealed in Jesus Christ and affirmed by the Holy Spirit, provides the ultimate standard by which any portion of Scripture should be interpreted and applied. It is not pleasing to God when any passage of Scripture is used to diminish or oppress races, genders, or classes of human beings. Much physical and emotional violence has been done to some of God's beloved children through the misuse of Scripture. The church is called to confess and repent of such attitudes and practices. Scripture, prophetic guidance, knowledge, and discernment in the faith community must walk hand in hand to reveal the true will of God. Follow this pathway, which is the way of the living Christ, and you will discover more than sufficient light for the journey ahead. Yes, yes, gorgeous. I, uh... And maybe just to relate a little bit of a personal experience, I think it ties into this. People often ask me because I'm trying to help people navigate 
the, this faith transition where we move out of this simple way of thinking and begin to grab onto more nuanced and complex ideas. And I'm in that journey myself. And so people will, you know, message me on Facebook or write me an email through the podcast and they'll say, you know, what is your view on the Book of Mormon? Is it historical in your, in your view? And I do the same thing. I take the question off the table. I say, look, whether it is historically true or not, it is true in the sense that it draws me closer to Christ. And for me right now where I'm at, that is enough. And I think the community of Christ as a whole has, has taken that step and I think that offers a lot more flexibility uh, for people not to get hung up on the historical questions, but rather ask themselves, does this draw me closer to Christ? And if so, then it is sacred and true scripture. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, there, there are some questions of what is canon for the community. I mean, <laughs> you know, somebody could say, well, this, this book that I found at the library, I mean, this draws me closer to Christ, so I want to read from it in a sacrament meeting or something, you know, there are, there are obviously, at least for me, I would say that there are some parameters um, that the community has to live within, but I, I love, uh, I love that, that it's, it's not uh, a question of whether it's literally true or not. It's not this black and white um, question that, that the scripture never claims to be a history book. It never, <laughs> you know, it, it never, it never makes those claims of itself, but rather, is this something that points me to God? And then if so, it's worthy, you know, of my consideration. Yeah, yeah. And I totally agree with you too that it can't be just a book that any of us find, you know, the a poem, the, you know, two roads diverged in a yellow wood, right? And sorry, I try, you know, we, we could sit and get into those kinds of things and debate back and forth whether pieces of literature or scripture. But as you point out, I think it needs to be a commonly accepted writing within the community, not just a particular member saying this is scripture to me, therefore it's scripture. Right. Yeah. I want to finish off. You mentioned there this black and white, and I was talking a little bit about that kind of as a wrap up question. Are you familiar with the uh, Fowler and stages of faith? Okay. So this will make a good transition kind of into this question. I, I think often most religions teach at a very stage three or what we would say a very black and white kind of level where things are either or and things are cut and dry and it's a very simple way of organizing the world. But what happens is many of us, as we kind of travel this journey, we realize that the world is just way messier. There's there's exceptions to every rule. There, it, Things just are not as cut and dry as we like to paint them. And I think the LDS church does this stage three black and white thing just like a lot of other religions do. But it, it seems to me talking to you, and I don't mean to put my faith down and to, and to put yours up on a pedestal, but simply to make an observation, it seems to me as if uh, the community of Christ has moved into uh, more of a stage four, maybe even tiptoeing into stage five of what Fowler would label, you know, basically understanding there's messiness, understanding there's nuance, giving people a lot more room and flexibility to set to set their faith kind of on their own terms, maybe speak for a moment about what it takes or what one has to be or do to be considered a faithful member of the community of Christ. It's a great question, and you know, I, I really see uh, the stages within the journey that community of Christ has taken. Uh, that, that there was a definite maturing that happened in the 60s and the 70s and becoming comfortable with who we are. Uh, for a long time, we were a people that had a negative identity. We aren't the Mormons. We don't practice polygamy. 
Um, but there has been a growing awareness that we want to move beyond the simplistic, naive faith that's unquestioned. And I guess I, I would look to um, maybe not Fowler as much, but you're probably familiar with Ricoeur's um, Second Naivete. But there, there's definitely a journey that many of us in Community of Christ have taken from that unquestioned faith into the desert of criticism where before we didn't question ever anything and now in the desert of criticism we question everything. And the hope is that you come full circle, that you come back and reclaim your faith, that it doesn't have uh, the same naive assumptions that you had previously. I mean, your eyes have been opened, but that you are saying this is something powerful and meaningful to me and therefore I will choose to believe it, in spite of my doubts, in spite of the paradoxes that might exist or the difficulties, I choose to believe. I choose to claim this, and I reclaim its power for me. And the, the hope is that in so doing, you become much more accepting of other people's faith journeys, that even if, you know, if you want to say the LDS Church is stage three, um, I'm completely all right with the LDS Church being stage three, and that's their how they engage uh, with God. I mean, it doesn't. The fact that somebody else has a different way of seeing God doesn't challenge my faith. Nor do I feel like I need to proselyte. That I need to go knock on my neighbors' doors and convince them. You know, I live in a mostly Mormon town. I don't need to convince them that they're wrong uh, in order to feel better about my faith. And so, the hope uh, is that in Community of Christ we can develop disciples who strive to model Christ in the world, who strive to be as Jesus was, to challenge oppression, to cry out against uh, any form of religion that pulls people down, but to say that all are called, all are worthy, that, the, that all humans have worth. And in becoming that champion of God's vision for creation and for uh, humanity, we're all transformed. You're transformed internally as, as you seek to bring about Zion externally. Um, so it's a very delicate thing because I, you know, I, I don't want, on one hand, you know, I, I, I want to be able to challenge um, conditions in the world that are contrary to God's will. And on the other hand, I very much seek to be respectful of other people's religious views. I mean, there, there comes a point where I draw a line uh, and say that, you know, this isn't just culturally relative, that you can have it your way and I can have it my way and that that's fine. I mean, there are certain points where uh, I'm required in being prophetic. I'm required to stand up and say, no, that's wrong. But for the most part, um, our, our faith should be a positive uh, journey that's not contingent upon, you know, I, I, I don't know how, I hate to say it this way, but it's not contingent upon proving that somebody else is wrong. I'm, I'm not right because somebody else is wrong. No, I, I like that. I, I want to ask you one more thing, which wasn't necessarily in the outline that we talked about, but kind of taking off this last question, how much dissent in the community of Christ is welcomed? How much dissent is tolerated? And, and maybe perhaps any idea of kind of where that line is? Well, I, quite a bit of dissent is tolerated um, compared to my experience in the LDS Church. And we actually have um, principles for faithful disagreement uh, that came out recently. And the idea is, uh, if you disagree with the church, if you have your own personal theology, if there's something that um, you just feel strongly, it should be a different way. And your priesthood, or you're in a position 
or maybe you're teaching a class or something like that, uh, it's not that you, it's not that you can't, you can't bring up, um, challenging questions. But at the end of the day, if you're a member of the priesthood and, you know, if you're a pastor, especially a pastor, somebody in a position like that, um, you're expected to keep your personal theology to yourself and represent the church to which you're ordained. Um, now, that might sound harsh if you if you came to, or that might sound repressive, but if you came to a community of Christ congregation, I mean, you literally see that there is a whole variety of opinions on just about everything, that we welcome discussion and disagreement, um, that we don't, I mean, one of our enduring principles is unity in diversity. We value our unity and our diversity. And, you know, God isn't intending uh, for disciples to be cookie cutters. Um, I think President Uchtdorf said that recently. I really like President Uchtdorf, by the way, but um, that God throughout nature shows so much diversity in creation and our congregations are the exact same way to the point where even two congregations are completely different. Like there's no one congregation and community of Christ. that's exactly the same. So, I mean, we're, we're expected um, members of the priesthood are expected to represent the church faithfully. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Uh, but at the same time, we're also allowed to be intellectually honest with ourselves uh, and with others. And at times, um, that kind of diverse community can be painful. Um, there's there's always pains that come along with the joy. But in honoring you know, the, the different views that all of us have, we really are strengthened by that, and it expands our vision. We are not in any way lessened uh, by the diversity of opinion. It strengthens us um, to recognize the worth in somebody else's views and the journey that they've been on. And then maybe even if I disagree with them, that God is there with them in their journey. So in the average um, Community of Christ congregation, you meet every Sunday. How long does church last? So normally two hours, uh, maybe more. I mean, I can speak for Salt Lake congregation specifically, although there's you know plenty of other congregations that do it differently. But uh, we meet for... Sunday school at 10 o'clock, and then we have a worship service at 11. And that worship service usually ends around 12:15. Uh, and we might have a potluck after, or you know, we might just sit and and talk and fellowship. But I mean, generally, it's a, it's not a three-hour block um, experience for the most part. Um, but if we have a priesthood meeting, which can happen, I mean, you potentially could have three-hour service, but that's definitely not the norm. Gotcha, gotcha. We're talking today with uh, with Seth Bryant. Seth, I just want to say thank you for being on. I think people are really going to enjoy this episode. You're you're really good. Uh, I think you're just a nice, smooth speaker, and and you you take out ideas I think pretty quickly and put really good thoughts together. I just appreciate you taking time out of your day to spend with us, and uh, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Well, Bill, I really appreciate it. Thank you. And who brought the dead to life? He's the one who fed the hungry and who gave the blind their sight. He's the one who walked on water, then he brought them safe to shore. And whenever you may need him, he's the one you're looking for. So let him in. 
His grace.